Hey, beer fans, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where 25 of the world's best brewers give you their tips, tricks, and secrets, and offer their insights on how to make your brew day a little more interesting. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we'll be heading over to the pub to do our, well, our usual talking about, well, South America. The stuff about the craft beer seal, because uh, people apparently had reactions to that. Uh, a little bit about some breweries both opening and closing and what that means for the industry. And then in the library, we're going to tackle a really interesting article on New England IPA. And in the brewery, we'll be looking at just how you might be able to make your own beer cans at home. And then off... Yeah, I know. And then in the lounge, we're going to talk to one of the Alstrom brothers, Mr. Todd Alstrom. Uh, If you don't know the Alstrom brothers, they are the two boys who founded Beer Advocate. Uh, Talk to them. Yeah, it was a... I thought it was a fascinating interview, man. Uh, lots of lots of info that I just didn't know. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, more stuff to learn. We'll tackle a couple of questions, but don't forget, we're prepping for our next Q&A episode. We'll give you a quick tip and something other than beer and get you on your way into your beery day. Hooray, hooray, hooray. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Now that uh, we've had a chance to hear from the people who make this show possible, uh, it's announcement time, right? It is indeed announcement time. So a couple of things to realize is that, uh, well, just last week, we released a new Brew Files episode, episode number 14, uh, called On the Vine with Dave Lustig, where, well, we're taking a break from beer and exploring how to make some wine at home. So make sure you go back and give that a listen if you haven't already. Wow, episode 14 already. Time flies when you're working your butts off. Yep, it's how it goes. All right. 
Hey, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is, well, wait, hold on. We have to say something different now. That's Jenny, right. You want to take it? We've now officially finished with our charity drive for the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society and the grand total donation we'll be making is $1,200. Thank you to all of you for helping out with this. You people just... Just absolutely rock. And uh, we really hope that you'll get on board with our new charity. For the second half of the year, listener, homebrewer, and incredible snack stick maker Paul Fowler suggested Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which is helping fund care and treatment of pediatric cancer. So uh, we hope that you guys will all be as generous with this uh, charity as you have with the previous ones. I mean, kids with cancer can you think of anything that needs support more than that um you know i it's it's a great cause so please 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 uh go to the website experimentalbrew.com click on the patreon link and contribute whatever you can afford to help us with this great charity yeah indeed i think our next charity might have to be puppies with cancer with kids who are homeless (laughs) we seem to be bouncing back and forth, don't we? You know, uh, we'll have to we'll have to see what else we can come up with. Hey, and that just reminds me, we are always open to suggestions for charities. So if any of you out there have uh, suggestions for the next one, six months down the road, please let us know so we can start looking into it. And uh, we love your ideas. That about takes care of all the upfront stuff. So why don't we mosey over to the pub and grab a beer? You know how to mosey, I assume. It's something like a shuffle, but with more of a twang. (laughs) Yeah, that's it exactly. Okay, we're going to be moseying and we'll see you in the pub in a minute. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. We have completed our mosey, and we are now sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, drinking a couple beers. And uh, Drew, what do you have there in front of you? Well, I have... A couple of weeks ago, my wife went away on vacation to go do some classes, and I had the house to myself, which meant that I got to go up, get up to shenanigans. And one of the shenanigans that I did was I spent a little bit of time uh, in the evening going and exploring a bunch of the breweries that around L.A. County that I hadn't had a chance to visit yet. And so one of the breweries I went to was Progress Brewing Company in South El Monte, California. And I went there, and it was really cool. It was sort of what you would typically expect from a brewery, right? You know, two buildings, one of which had the cellar area and the tap room, which was much bigger than the brewery itself. 
But while I was there, I had a really nice glass of Wolfgang Munich Helles, and I took a Kreiler of it away to go. Nice 5.4% beer, uh, really good, crisp, clean uh, grain character to it, and actually really sort of pleasant to see and pleasant to drink. And I suspect now I've seen a couple breweries here in the L.A. area having Helles's on tap, so I think that might be L.A.'s new go-to style, at least for the summer. But the real reason why I wanted to mention Progress and give them a shout-out was... Progress is in South El Monte, and South El Monte is a heavily Hispanic part of the L.A. area. And going there, what was great was we tend to think of craft beer and home brewing as being a bunch of bearded white dudes with bellies and maybe boots or Birkenstocks or Converse's. And while I was there, you know, they had the food truck going, they had the Dodgers games on, and I looked around that whole place, and it was slamming. Lots of people there on a Tuesday night, and... I was one of a small handful of people who fit that stereotype. Everybody else in that place was treating it as like, that's their neighborhood brewery, you know, a bunch of, you know, Hispanic folks of different origins, you know, all hanging out and enjoying, you know, great craft beer. It's fantastic. Wow. You know what? There are times I wish I lived in a neighborhood so I could have a neighborhood brewery, but uh, <laughs> it is it is not to be. Uh, my neighborhood brewery is me. So I'm uh, I'm drinking a beer called A Touch of Brett from Alesong Brewing and Blending here in Eugene. It was their gold medal beer at GABF. Uh, they'd been in business for six months, and they won a gold medal for this amazing beer. And uh, it's just absolutely delicious. Uh, so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Alesong in a couple minutes, because I was just there recently. But I guess what uh, the real news is that as you listen to this, I am on an airplane heading to Chile, Santiago, Chile, for the second South American Homebrew Cup. They've asked me to come down and speak and judge, and uh, it looks like it's going to be a really interesting event. Uh, we'll have a lot of pictures of that and uh, lots of uh, tall tales and stories from my time down there. Once I get back, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing, uh, getting to travel like this and meet homebrewers all over the world. I just wish that, uh, maybe the, the transporter was working so I didn't have to spend 30 hours in a plane to get there. Yeah, I was going to say, how long is the flight? Uh, you know, it, it, it's not quite as long as our flight to Brazil. Uh, I start off going from here to Seattle, which is only a couple hours. And from Seattle, I go to Atlanta, which is five or six hours. And from Atlanta, I go to Santiago, which is about, oh, about nine hours or so. So, you know, it's like 17 hours of actual flight time, maybe uh, 20, 22 hours of the entire trip. So... I'll, I'll be crispy fried by the time I get there, but uh, I'll, I'll be ready for some fun and meeting some homebrewers. There you go. Uh, and do you know what are you going to talk on? Yeah, I'm going to uh, give my uh, recipe design and evaluation seminar, pretty much the same one that I did for the uh, Zymergy Live for the AHA. Uh, apparently, a number of the people in Chile had seen that and kind of liked what it was, so... Uh, I said that I would do that. So we'll be introducing clam chowder Cezanne to a new country this time around. Yeah, I suspect you might have to explain what clam chowder is, but we'll go. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I probably will, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Maybe I'll take a few cans and pass it around. Why don't we uh, sit down and talk a little bit about that uh, independent beer seal thing that got introduced last week, or a couple weeks ago now. Yeah, let's do Because, uh, well, I think that has been an interesting set of reactions. I've been seeing generally a lot of positive reactions to it and a lot of support. But I've also been seeing misunderstanding about what it really means. And I've also been seeing some pushback. And the the two things are that a lot of people seem to feel like the idea of putting this out here is to designate quality beer. And, you know, we know that we'd all like to think that uh, independent craft beer is higher quality than other beer. But we also know that in reality... That's oftentimes, or at least occasionally, not the case. So, you know, people need to realize that this seal just indicates the mark of an independent brewery. That means one that is 25% or less owned by a large beverage conglomerate. Mm-hmm. And that that's what it means. And the quality is up to you to find out when you uh, buy some of those beers and drink it. The other thing that I've been finding is that there are people that feel like, you know, if they want to go out and, you know, drink a Coors Light or a Miller High Life or a Pabst or something like that, that the seal is, in effect, kind of putting down their beer choices Uh and that is just not the way to look at it at all. Uh, the, a lot of those same people say, oh, it's stratifying the market. And, and you know, the market's already see, stratified. Yeah, exactly. And I see it as nothing more than a piece of information that you can do with as you wish. Yeah, I think all the judgment calls are, you know, pretty much in the eye of the beholder. To me, the seal is it's information. You know, use that information as you will. Now, I know there are other people who are debating about, Oh, d- does this seal actually really mean independence since it allows like folks like Yingling or people who have private equity companies as ownership and all that sort of stuff? You know, does that really mean they're independent? And I think there's like I've seen calls for, hey, you know, we need to have like levels of independence and information so that you can say that, you know, oh, this person was, you know, is partially owned by a foreign brewery. This person's owned by a private equity. No, this person is just these people. And I don't know. I, th- I think. Given how confused I see everybody get about operating the self-checkout register at the grocery store, uh, (laughs) I think that might be taking it a little far. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that uh, basically it it comes down to what we were talking about uh, last time around, that uh, the real key is going to come from the Brewers Association educating people about exactly what that mark means and how they should use it. you know, it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that the beer it's on is going to be better than some other beer. It doesn't mean that if you don't buy that beer, you're a bad person. It simply is an indication that that brewery conforms to the Brewers Association's definition of an independent brewery. And you can use that information the same way as you use information on food or anything else you buy to make your buying decision. Yeah, I mean, and I think you don't need to... I, I've had other people argue, hey, you know, this is this is sort of pointless, it's, it's meaningless. But I think we saw just how meaningful some people take this with exactly how fast 
ABI responded to the announcement of the seal. <laughs> yeah. They kind of uh, took it to heart, didn't they? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the seal was released on a Monday. And what was that? By a Wednesday or Thursday, they had flown. Like they had flown a bunch of their formerly independent craft breweries, all under the high end brand, to a similar location, and had them videotape a message back to the back to the world about why it was a bad idea, and that it was you know, it, it's us against it's us against wine and spirits and and true punks don't need a logo and all this other sort of stuff and it's like <laughs> yeah that was my favorite one man yeah. <laughs> come no, on yeah no true punks don't need a logo but they sure as hell like that abi money yeah right well you know and and that's the thing it's like if these guys uh really feel like that then they should put a label on their beers and say proudly owned by abi right yeah exactly but i mean again whatever <laughs> if you want i mean if your thing is you just drink the beer based on the quality and the quality of the beer is meets your needs, that's fine by me. I mean, I, I'm not yep. I'm not going to be the strident person out there. Well, okay, I'll I'll try not to be the strident person out there. Exactly. But I mean, this sort of thing helps me. This is exactly what I want. And truthfully, I mean, because even for me, it's hard for me to sometimes track you know who's who's sold to what and how much money is going where because, well. The market's changing quickly now. I mean, we saw this whole thing where, you know, it, even in the ABI video, they were talking about, oh, well, you know, it, because we're getting our shorts eaten by uh, wine and spirits and beer sales are down, you know, it's like, and craft beer sales have stagnated, yes, but really, if you look at that, when they say beer sales are down, it's largely because the macros are down. You know, like the things that actually drive the dire, dire warnings about macro beers or beer sales being below those are wine and spirits now. It's because the macros are di- dipping. You know, craft beer is is hanging in there and holding its own. It's not growing as rapidly as it used to, and that's fine. Right, and we talked about this a few weeks back about how the uh, the the decline in the beer market is mainly due to a decline in the macros because they have so much of the market share. So they're obviously going to have a, a bigger impact on the market. But you know, again, to get back to it all. It's a piece of information on the label, just like all the other information on the labels of all the other products you buy. Uh, Of course, we hope and the Brewers Association hopes that you're going to support independent breweries by buying their products. But the bottom line is buy and drink whatever you like. We're not going to judge you. And uh, there you go, right? Yeah, I'll try not to. Yeah, you'll you'll try not to. Uh, I'm I'm too old to do that anymore. Uh, years ago, I gave up judging people by what they drink. Uh, I might feel sorry for them if they're not drinking good beer, but I'm not going to tell them that they're a bad person. <laughs> no, I'll, t- I'll I'll tell them they're a bad person for other reasons. All okay. Right. Yeah. So hey, let's let's get into you know away from the independent thing. Well, actually, really still in the independence thing and a little bit of the market thing. You went to an opening. Yes. Uh, I have talked about Ale Song Brewing and Blending here in Eugene many times. Uh, the head brewer, Matt Van Wyck, was formerly the uh, head brewer at uh, Oakshire Brewing. And uh, he got together with uh, a guy named Brian Coombs, who was uh, the lab guy at Oakshire, and Brian's brother, Doug. And they opened up Ale Song. Uh, Ale Song at this point is brewing on other people's brew systems, but then they uh, do the fermentation themselves. 
the, the design of the beer and blending is a large part of what they do. And they're making some outstanding, outstanding beers. Um, not, you know, I don't want to put anybody else down because we have a lot of great breweries here in Oregon. But uh, for my money, Ale Song is the best brewery in Oregon at this point. And they have just opened a new tasting room. Uh, it's south of Eugene, about oh, 20, 25 miles. Uh, so it's a, a destination kind of thing in a beautiful part of the country, right next to one of the state's largest wineries, King Estates. Um, and the uh, Ale Song has built a beautiful little building out there, gorgeous bar. We'll set up some pictures of it so you can see it. But uh, let me tell you, if you are in the area and you are a fan of really amazingly good beers with a huge variety to them, then this is the place you want to go. It's a bit of a drive to get there, but once you do, you're in the middle of the beautiful Oregon hills. You have a, a great view off to the east of uh, the Sisters and some gorgeous mountains. And you can just sit there at one of their outdoor picnic tables and uh, drink one of their incredible beers and uh, have, a, have a great afternoon. So uh, they had a soft opening yesterday. My wife and I went out there and had a wonderful time and brought home some beer. Well, and more importantly, we'll be having them up on the show before too long so that I can have some of their wonderful beer, too. Yeah, uh, they make a beer, uh, a uh, they call it a hop farm. So it's kind of a vaguely farmhouse-style beer with a reasonable amount of hops to it and dry hopped and aged in gin barrels. And uh, we're going to have Matt Van Wyk on, and Drew and I will be drinking some of that beer and talking to Matt about it. So, yeah, I, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, so and we're so used to kind of positive news in the in the beer world, and things are moving forward in Excelsior uh, that sometimes we forget that businesses are businesses and they close. And I just wanted to give a, a real quick shout out. Uh, just before we started this podcast, I went on a trip to the Lincoln Lager Sowers Cup in Lincoln, Nebraska, and while I was there, I was actually got a chance to hang out, do the competition, and have meals and everything else. At a very good friend of mine, uh, his brewery, and it's Plowshare Brewing Company in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it was opened by um, Matt Stinchfield, who also serves as the Brewers Association Safety Amb- Ambassador. So he actually, you know, runs around and consults with breweries and tells them about how to be safer, and does things like, uh, for instance, Plowshare Brewing Company had their boiler on site, but in a separate room that was completely lined with brick. You know, so it was completely designed to be explosion safe and keep everybody safe in the brewery. Brewery was gorgeous. He was making great beers, but, you know, because of things like construction overruns and, you know, uh, food costs and other things and all those kind of changing prices, even though he had a great location right near the University of uh, Nebraska campus, he ended up uh, just closing the business after three years of running it. And it, it's kind of a hard a hard thing to do, but you know, he puts it down as being a math equation. I'm hoping that we're going to actually have him on to talk because I want, I, if you guys are interested in this, let's put that out there first. If you guys are interested in this, I think it's important for us to have the other side of the conversation, understand what happens when things don't go completely right and why you might make the decision to leave the business. So all I can say is I know this is going to keep happening, but it's always a little sad when it does. You know, one thing that I have observed and heard many other people say is that uh, 
too many people who want to open a brewery think that it's only about the beer. Uh, you make good beer, you'll have a successful brewery. That's definitely one part of it, but it seems that what far too many people either don't realize or don't have the experience to deal with uh, is that it's a business, too. And, you know, you have to be prepared for the ups and downs of running a business and the uh, the financial uncertainties. Uh, that There was a, a brewery here that I had done some consulting work for that uh, closed recently, again, after about three years. And, you know, the, the circumstances were a little bit different. But all the way through, I saw those guys making really good beer and really having a problem getting it sold. So to me, it's kind of just like I I always say, uh, making beer is the easy part. Selling beer is the hard part. And if you can't sell it, then you don't have a brewery. Yeah, exactly. And so, I don't know. I mean, I would like to know what people uh, people think out there. Are there, is there an interest in telling these kinds of stories? Because, I mean, this isn't the sort of rah-rah, you know, can do go to spirit that we always talk about with a uh, craft beer when things don't work out. But I want to know if uh, people, if the listeners want to hear this sort of stuff. But in the meanwhile, I give uh, I got to give a big old shout out to Matt. I know Matt is continuing on. He's he's still acting as the safety ambassador and he's still moving forward doing consulting work and all that. So I know he's going to keep doing great things. But it just makes me a little sad that they closed because they were yep. doing a really nice job. Well, good on you, Matt, and uh, all the best in your future endeavors. I think it's time to go and do some other stuff. <laughs> cool. Jeez, I, I will spare everybody my singing because they've heard more than enough of that. Yeah, we're going to uh, wander over to the library now and uh, talk about yet another Scott Janish article, one of our favorite beer researchers. And uh, he's been doing some research into the haze in New England IPA. Oh, yes, one of my favorite topics. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Back in the library, my favorite room in the house, where we get to sit down and smell old paper and books, and, well, of course, these days, smell the bits coming off the computer screen That's as right. we read things. So, uh, Danny and I, we've referenced uh, Scott Janish in the past. Scott does a lot of really great work, and, of course, I think we totally forgot to give a shout-out to the fact that Scott and Mike Tonsmeyer, who have both been on the show are getting ready to open up their own sour brewery together in partnership between D.C. and uh, Baltimore called Sapwood Cellars. So, congratulations. Well, at least one of them is a sap. 
<laughs> Sorry, Mike. <laughs> you know I right. didn't mean but, that. But Scott's uh, Scott's been doing a lot of uh, writing and research about the whole New England IPA thing, a lot of hop hop related topics like different methodologies of dry hopping, all this sort of stuff. And last week, as we're recording this, he actually published a whole thing about looking at the studies and about how does the haze thing happen, what causes it, what can be used to emphasize it, and more importantly, and I think what was more interesting was. Is there a way to brew a New England style IPA, you know, that fruity hop bomb that focuses on the juicy qualities of hops as opposed to the, you know, bitter properties? Is there a way to push those aromatics and flavors without inducing the haze that seems to drive so many people so nuts, including my good old reading buddy here? Yeah, you know, and I. Frankly, I, I don't really object to the haze aesthetically all that much. I mean, it is ugly as hell, but that wouldn't stop me from drinking the beer. What I uh, have objected to is the effect that the haze has on the flavor and especially the mouthfeel of the beer. So I, I guess just to start off with, what's you know, if it's not hazy, is it still a New England IPA? There are so many people who uh, seem to go to great lengths to induce haze uh, I had always assumed that it was just kind of a byproduct of the practices that uh, give you the flavor of a New England IPA. So anyway, Scott dove into this, and uh, he, you know, what he said is that what makes the most sense to him is that it, it mainly boils down to two factors: proteins and polyphenols. Okay, well, I don't think that that's like a huge, earth-shattering revelation to anyone. Uh, basically the, uh, you know, the proteins and polyphenols bind and that's what causes haze in a beer. Uh, but what he actually did was try to brew a, uh, a clear New England IPA to see if maybe, uh, these proteins and polyphenols uh, were responsible for the flavor or not. And one of the impetuses behind this was the fact that he finds so many New England IPAs to have a, a harsh polyphenolic finish from the amount of uh, hops put in late and especially dry hopping. So what he wanted to try to do was to see if he could come up with a beer that tasted like a New England IPA without the harshness that he gets. Right. And so I think very early on in the article, he shows an example of two different beers done, uh, both a mosaic and one done with just mosaic pellet hops and the other one done with mosaic powder. And, and think about this. Powder is basically the sort of a reduction in all the plant material that comes across with the hops, right? So it's right. pa uh, pa it's powderized lupulin glands with you know some other extraneous material, but not as much anywhere near as much leaf matter as what you get in even a pelletized hop. And the leaf matter, of course, is where you get all the hop polyphenols. And right, and, and so uh, Scott also had mentioned that he detected this harshness as as a vegetal bitterness. So uh, yep. his thinking was by getting rid of the vegetation from the hops and uh, just using the lupulin glands, it would cut that down. Yeah, and and there's a very clear picture on the site that shows you know two samples in the exact same glass, and yeah, the one that uses the pellets is, you know, cloudy and hazy and you know orange juicy e, and the one that used the powder still has a haze, but it's not the same depth of haze. It's not the 
you know, hi, my light is bouncing around inside the glass never to escape. Right, right. The other thing that I thought was very interesting was that, you know, a lot of people who are brewing New England IPAs trying to make them hazy and, and assure that there's haze in them use a high proportion of high protein grains, things like uh, unmalted wheat, uh, you know, unmalted oats, stuff like that. Well, as it turns out, in unmalted grains, the protein particles are larger than in malted grains. That means that these larger protein particles collect more polyphenols and drop out of solution a, a lot more easily because of the size, which then translates into weight. And actually, by using unmalted grains in a beer, you will end up with a clearer beer than you d would if you used the same grains in a malted form. Who knew? Basically, then, what Scott goes on to say is that the authors speculate that due to higher proteolytic activity in malt, the, which is the breakdown of proteins, the barley proteins, the malted barley proteins, are more degraded, which leads to smaller particles. And the idea is that smaller particles then tend to remain in suspension longer. So it, it really kind of like blows everybody's view of the fact that uh, adding a lot of unmalted grains will make your beer more hazy. Yeah, and you know, and this isn't the first time I've heard the whole small protein type. Uh, haze thing as well because i i swear i heard this in terms of uh, i want to say this was also done in terms of some lager stuff that i was reading where people were talking about this or maybe it was uh, hefeweizens and you know talking about like yeah you know contrary to your belief you know the bigger stuff settles out and so if you can get smaller chunks of things you'll have more of a haze or more of a more of a thickness and a viscosity hanging out in the beer which I mean, can be desirable for some things, but uh, still, this isn't the first time I've heard that. So anyway, what was the upshot of all this? I mean, he ended up brewing a beer. Yes, he did. Uh, he used 17% uh, oat flour in the beer, uh, and he uh, actually made a not-too-murky uh, New England IPA doing that that had all the flavor characteristics that he was going for. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see because You'll see in the in the article the sort of the difference in the colors and the fact like the not New England IPA that is a New England IPA. I mean, yeah, it's, again, it has a tiny bit of haze to it, but I mean, it has the sort of haze to it that I'd expect with almost any sort of a hoppy beer. Right. And you know, hey, if you can make yeah. if you can make this, you could finally settle everybody's arguments about. The haze is bad. Well, you know, it, it's been well known for a long time that the more hops you put in the beer, the cloudier the beer is going to be because of the polyphenols in the hops, right? So then, uh, again, to me, the, the fascinating thing that Scott has found here is that uh, by using unmalted grains, those large protein particles will actually bind to the polyphenols and help bring them out to clear the beer to some extent. And... I just want to read this sentence from his article because for me, this is, this is the takeaway I got from it. And he says, this information seems to conclude that using a high percentage of unmalted wheat, for example, could slightly help clear up the murkiness in a Northeast IPA, if that's a goal. 
but also reduce the polyphenol content because gluten proteins have a polyphenol removing effect, which might not be a bad thing considering the large amounts of polyphenols that will also be added during dry hopping. Remember, polyphenols can have a harsh medicinal and metallic taste in large concentrations. So, again, you know, not only does it clear the beer, but these can also take care of some of the flavor problems that Scott had been detecting. Anyway, fascinating article. Yeah, and I I think there's something to be said there. So, use more uh, unmalted grains, and if you can, get your hands on some hop powder. And use that if you want to drive your ultimate. Right. And, and just to be clear, clear the hop beer. powder is the, are the cryo hops that we've been talking about right. on and off. And I've been, I've been working with those, uh, not as much as I'd like to, but we're going to get back to it. So we'll, uh, we'll post a link to Scott's article, uh, on our website so you can run over and check it out. Scott, thanks very much, man, for doing all that you do. Uh, take good care of Tonsmeyer and uh, best of luck to you guys in your new brewery. Woo, and speaking of the brewery. Yes. Let's go there. All righty. Let's go there. We're going to uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be in the brewery talking about Drew's Can. We'll be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Uh, homebrew con in minneapolis recently we spent a lot of time on the expo floor looking at some really really cool new products and uh, there was one in particular where i saw drew's eyes light up and sure enough he just couldn't resist yeah i'm i'm a gadget fiend but i do want to go back to one thing first uh your previous announcement before we came in here was talking about my can uh i would like to say we're not going to talk about my can we're going to talk about my cans. I <laughs> oh, cans. excuse me. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, as we know, cans have taken over the craft beer scene in a lot of ways. You know, nowadays, if it doesn't come in a can, some people get suspicious of it. And it's kind of awesome to see because we've rescued the can from its lousy reputation. But, of course, as homebrewers, bottles are still king. Kegs are still king because, well, those are available to us. We know exactly how to use those. It's know, a five-gallon you know, can, right? Yeah, exactly. So... I don't know of very many homebrewers who haven't looked at those can things before and gone, hey, you know, that'd be kind of nifty. But in the past, the can the canning machines have been way too expensive. If you look at those crowler machines that you see in a lot of breweries nowadays as their substitute for growlers, that machine's dollars to $5,000, right? That's well out of position for almost all homebrewers. And even then, if you go and look at the new October Mark 16 that hit the market, I think, last year, 
which is a very sleek, modern design with a motor and everything else, it's 1500 to make cans. Now, that actually puts it into the realm of sort of the crazy the crazy gearhead guy. And we've known a couple of homebrewers who've gone out and bought, bought those. I almost bought one. But while we were... <laughs> because let's face it, you are a crazy gearhead guy. Yeah, kind of, but I try not to be. Um, <clears throat> I still try to be the beer guy. But while we were at the expo floor, one of the people who had a booth uh, just up the way from where we recorded the podcast was the Wisconsin Aluminum Foundry. And you've probably never heard of Wisconsin Aluminum Foundry, but you may have heard of one of their brands that they produce, All-American. And they're known really for these All-American pressure cookers that you'll see. If you have one, odds are good it may have come from your grandmother. Uh, but it is a pressure cooker with a lid and these big thumb screws that go over the top of it, screw down and clamp everything tight. They are rock-solid devices that will not, you know, die, Right. You, the Morlocks will be able to pick them up. Well, it turns out Wisconsin Aluminum Foundry also makes an all-American uh, all automatic can sealer. And they have since the 1930s. And they just happen to be showing them off at the con. And it is an old-school mechanical device. You look at this thing, and the, uh, they had a couple of models, but the one that they sold to, I think, most of the homebrewers out there was the, the cheaper model, which is a hand-cranked version of a can seamer, right? So now remember, the trick about cans is... Yeah, it's an aluminum tube. You put a lid on top of it, and then you have to roll the the seams of the lid and the top of the can together multiple times to form an airtight seal. And that's how that works. And it's kind of a pain to get done. But this device, literally, it's put a filled can in it, crank a lever, turn a wheel about 40 times, and you see these two arms swing in at various times and pinch the can and seal it together. And boom, voila, you have... A can. So they were offering a deal at the con for, I think it was $699. You got a automatic can sealer and you got a, a case of cans, either in 12 or 16 ounces. And I got the 16 ounce cans and I got the can sealer and I brought it home and I've already canned a couple of beers with it because why not? And literally my process is I sanitize the cans. I keep the cans in sanitizer solution, pick them up, use a beer gun and use the beer gun to do a CO2 flush, you know, nice and, and nice thorough CO2 flush on the can, and then a slow fill of ice-cold beer into the can, and then put that with the lid and a little bit of foam over the top of the can, put the lid down on that, put it in the machine, hook up a drill to the back of the machine, fire off the drill, and the drill drives the machine, and the did get a can. And it's great. And I'm playing around <laughs> with it. I'm, I'm not perfect at it yet, but... Even at the price point where it's at, I mean, this this is now an achievable price point, I think, for crazy, stupid people. And I, yes, I'm lumping myself in the crazy, stupid people category. But <laughs> the where I think the price point is actually really perfect for beyond the crazy, stupid people is the local homebrew shop, the local brewery. And obviously, All-American does make these for breweries as well. I've seen them at a couple and also at um, just as a, a homebrew club thing. So I could very easily see a homebrew shop saying, hey, you guys want to come in and can a beer? Great. We've got the cans because the best the best price point thing is when you actually can buy the cans in bulk. Uh, they get to actually be reasonably priced. They're 49 cents a unit if you're buying them by the case. Um, and 
homebrew shop or homebrew club can say, hey, come on, everybody, let's go in, let's uh, can our beer today and bring it in and help people set up to do canning. And I could totally see that being a thing that actually works and runs and, and being a service that shops and clubs can offer, particularly in this day and age when shops and clubs need to have some sort of appeal to them that isn't just something that you can recover online. So just a little thing. And I expect to have a video shot of the the canner in operation and showing people how that works. We'll have it up on our YouTube channel. I will make a big noisy announcement about it when I actually get my act together and produce it. So you will get a chance to actually see it. Cool, man. Well, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to you sending me up some of your canned beer. There you go. Now, let me ask you, Danny, what would it take for you to buy a canner? Like what price point would you have to hit? Is there a price point or do you just, you're not there? You know, well, price point is one thing and then you have to use it. And that to me is a bigger obstacle, but, uh, let's, let's talk price. I would say that if I could pick one up for less than 200 bucks, that would be, that would be an attractive price point for me. Uh, but the thing is, man, I hate even bottling and I try and avoid doing that at all costs. So even, even if it was reasonably priced, I'm still not sure it would be something that would be right for me. Oh yeah. And I'm the guy who hates bottling. So the fact that I'm amused by this, I, I can't even tell you. Um, <laughs> so that, that leaves the question out there to the audience and to our listeners. What do you think? Would you want to can beer at home? Would you want to be able to can beer as part of a group? Is this an attractive thing to you? Is there an idea behind it that actually seems like, yeah, no, 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 let's do that. Uh, uh, and what what price point would you take? Man, I can I can definitely see it as being something that like a club would buy, you know, and then the, the, you mm-hmm. could get together and use it together or pass it around to members or something. To me, that uh, that is the way to go with it. I agree. So, and that's, that's exactly what I think is, is the sort of current price point for this. Yeah, right. And I agree at the current price point, that would be, that would be a great thing. I think it's uh, time to head over to the lounge now and uh, listen to you talking to Todd Alstrom, huh? Yeah, let's go do that. We'll be right back. Stick around. Y-Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. The third quarter private collection emulates the rich traditions and characteristics of Belgian-style beers from Flanders to Florinville. 3739 Flanders Gold Nail, 3789 Trappist-style blend, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are worthy choices for creating the diverse styles of Belgium this summer. And don't forget, you can win all of the Y-Yeast summer seasonal yeasts, along with swag from Experimental Brewing and Y-Yeast. See experimentalbrew.com for contest rules. Contest closes July 31st, 2017. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, well, hey, it's time for the comfy chairs, and we're sitting down and enjoying ourselves. Nice beer, nice sip of something warm. The fire is crackling. Okay, well, maybe not the fire crackling right now. The air conditioner is blowing, and the fans are twirling. Yeah. Uh... But what we figured we'd bring you today is, uh, well, you know, if you've ever been a beer rating type person and uh, 
you know, done the whole, I want to go review beers, or even if you just wanted to find information on looking at beers, you know, there are a couple of places that you can go. And the oldest of them on the web has been beeradvocate.com. And of course, I have a long time relationship with the folks at Beer Advocate because I've been writing for their magazine since the start of the magazine. But I just recently got to sit down with Todd Alstrom, one of the two Alstrom brothers who founded BeerAdvocate.com, uh, at the Arts District Brewing Company in downtown L.A. Because it turns out Todd has now moved to Los Angeles. Uh, and so I suspect we'll be spending some more time doing things. But I figured it would be fun to catch up and learn like what he's seen as the state of the beer industry and what's changed and you know what hasn't in the whole time. And well, just really where the heck he thought they were going to go with the site when they first started it. Hey, so welcome everybody to another edition of the podcast, and I am sitting here once again in the Arts District uh, Brewing Company here in downtown L.A., in the, well, the oddly enough, the Arts District of L.A., and I am sitting here with one Mr. Todd Alstrom. Todd, say hi to everybody. Hey, how's it going? All right. So now, Todd, why should people know who you are? Well, why should they care who I am? <laughs> Well, care versus no is a is my, a whole. My brother and I started a, a website in '96 called Beer Advocate, so I'm one of the founders. Yeah, well, and, and if you're in the beer, you should know about it. If you're not, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're not into beer, why are you listening to this podcast? So now let's talk a little bit about uh, Beer Advocate because I you started that I think what 1996. Yep, '96 when I think maybe a. One percent of the world was on the internet. Yeah, I mean, I went to MIT. I was in Boston, and mm-hmm. I had the internet at the time. But I don't think very many other people knew. No, about the I think it, it was, and I hate using the word, but it was literally like around one percent. <laughs> and what the hell compelled you guys to say we want to make a beer a, or make a website? A one, hey, what's a website? Two about beer. Well, we were, it all started because we, we were home brewers. And um, so, yeah, we were home brewing back in the uh, early 90s, all the way up to the late 90s. And were you getting your supplies from Modern Home Brew? Out in- uh, no, no. We we're getting um, local brewers in the uh, Boston area. Mm-hmm. I forget the name, but yeah, it was a local shop, family run shop. And in 96. I mean, I won't, I'll do the shore version. In 96, we, my brother and I happened to live a house away from each other in East Boston. <laughs> so in, uh, we were in Eastie, we were home brewing, and we started ramping up. We were brewing like every week as you do when you begin, like when you get serious into it, mm-hmm. you're like every week. So it's like five-gallon batches every week, both of us, so 10 gallons of beer. And uh, just going through all the different styles, um, creating some cool stuff too. And we... We're like we're taking notes. Let's start taking notes on our homebrew. So we start comparing what we're what we're drinking, what we're brewing, and try to improve on them. And at the same time, we had a tech job in Boston, mm-hmm. and it was uh, basically working for ad agencies. Wait, you hold know. on. I, I, I want to stop and say, is anybody shocked that beer people at that point in time would be technical people, given exactly where? where yeah, I mean, maybe back then because. Um, where I worked, not a lot of people were into good beer at all. Mm-hmm. They had no idea. Like, I was like, you know that, we joke about it now, but you know, you hear about that, the beer guy, everyone's got that mm-hmm. beer guy in the office. I was the f***ing beer guy. Oh, like, I've, I've been the beer guy in so yeah. many offices. So no one, uh, yeah. So no one really knew about beer, but I was the beer guy. 
and myself in many ways was still getting into it. But anyway, so I was building out websites for large corporations, but I was like, well, we're taking these notes on our home brews. It'd be kind of cool if we started taking notes on commercial brews as well. Because mm-hmm. at the time, there wasn't a whole lot going on with American brewers. Mm-hmm. But Boston being the sort of hub for imports, mm-hmm. uh, we were getting a ton of beer um, sent our way from, from overseas. So we're like, let's, every time we crack something open, let's sit down and review it together. And we'll take notes on it and we'll publish it. I'll create a website. We'll publish it. I create some... It was called like a make script from mm-hmm. the command line, and I would kind of, <laughs> I would build all this HTML and HTML out, and then I would uh, it would push it via FTP over the dial-up modem, mm-hmm. and you wanted to do it quickly because you didn't want to rack up, you know, use up your thirty minutes for the month, whatever it was back then, an oh, Earthlink or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, I was going to say LL and Earthlink yeah, charges. Yeah. So we we'd push it quickly and we get updated, and that's how the site started. It was called Brew Guide back then. Um, we got tired of people asking, like, uh, what's your site called? We'd be like, Brew Guide. They're like, Brew Guys? No, Brew Guide. And the more you had to drink, the more it got, it got changed to different things. So in 2000, we called it Beer Advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's how it started in a nutshell. Basically, we were home brewers, taking notes on our own beers, and we want to start taking notes on commercial beers. Well, I was going to say, because, uh, I mean, I'm, to me, what's funny about that is you guys started that website in 96, which is yeah. right when I was leaving Boston. Yeah. And I, when people ask me, like, were you even the beer back then? Yeah, like, I was. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I mean, I, beer. I mean, like, good beer. Good beer, yes, okay. absolutely. Because yeah. I, I mean, yeah, when I first hit college, no, it was whatever was cheap, cold, and plentiful. And then as time went on, I mean, I lived right around the corner from uh, Will's Pub. Yeah, CBC. sure. Yeah, there. I mean, for seventeen years, or yeah. oh, maybe even more. That was my uh, Cambridge Brewing Company. That was yeah. my local. Yeah, Cam- right down Cam- the road. Cambridge Brewing, for, uh, Brewing Company in Kendall Square. And yeah. I mean, I always tell people when they ask me how I got into beer, I said, okay, one, I come from an Irish Catholic family with a lot of other English roots and a lot of drinking history from New England. But what got me into good beer was I always contributed to a triumvirate of beers. And you're going to be one of the few people I can talk to who's going who's gonna to know all three of them by heart. Harpoon IPA, yep. which is still available. May, uh, originally formulated by Todd Mott. Yep. Uh, and then Otter Creek Copper. Yeah. Oh, that was a delicious fucking beer. I love that beer. Man. If we I, had ratings back then, I would say it was highly underrated. Yeah. I mean, th- I mean that yeah. beer was... Yeah, it was, I, mean, that, it was, I, mean, I mean, that was just a beer you it was different. Drinking. It was so... But it's so delicious. Yeah, you could drink it all day. It was, yeah. a, it was it, our poundable beer of the time. And, but it was poundable, but it, it, it had flavor. I mean, it wasn't... A ton of flavor. Yeah. No. Malt forward like a lot of New England beers at the time. But yeah, yeah. It, was, it was delicious. And then the other one, of course, was in that same vein, Long Trail Lambert. Yeah. All right. Those are three so classically New England craft beers of yep. that particular period. They would even call them craft beers back then. No. The term wasn't even used. No. No, they were like microbrews or... We just called whatever. it beer, yeah. and it was good. But I mean, those are, the, I always tell people, if you say, hey, you know, how'd you get into beers? Those are the three beers I always tell people. Because, yeah. damn, those were good beers. I mean, Harpoon IPA was definitely up there for me. Harpoon, the, just the original Harpoon Ale, for sure. Yeah. But I remember tasting the IPA and it was like, damn, that's hoppy. Back so, then it was super hoppy. Oh, yeah. Well, and the other joke I always have is when I first moved out here to the West Coast, which was 96, 
I had friends of mine tell me, oh, you've got to try this Anderson Valley Hop Button IPA. It's the hoppiest thing you will ever put in your mouth. It probably so, was back then. Yeah, it's so blatantly hoppy. And, and now, of course, you go and you taste it and you're like going, that's not hoppy. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> back then it was. So, now let me ask, you started doing home brewing. Mm-hmm. Was, there, was there a particular homebrew that you had that, that made you go, I feel like a god because I've made good beer. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, like all homebrewers, we had a lot of trial and errors, and you know, we had some really great beers and some bad ones. But for me, I tend to, my brother was more on the hoppy side of mm-hmm. stuff, but I tend to start, I start nailing like Belgian style ales. Mm-hmm. And uh, that got me pretty excited. And then when we first went over for, our, we've been to Belgium a bunch of times. Brother and I were knighted and all that stuff. But Dude. I have, yeah, I love, I love Belgium, and I love the beers they produce. And I think I started like gravitating towards those and nailing them. Mm-hmm. I got excited when I when I first, it's probably I think it was like a, I'm pretty sure it was a Belgian double. It just it just had all the flavor profiles notes I was looking for, and I was like. I love this. This is really good. No, I mean, I mean, that's a good feeling of power. That's like your. It is when you're like, when you know, not because your friends told you, your mom told you, your grandfather told you, whatever, but someone told you like, your beer is good, but it was you because you kn- you just know that like the flavors match oh, up. Well, th- there are times I think it's just like when you, saying golf or baseball, right? When you yeah. when you take that perfect swing yeah. and you connect, yeah, and like the second you connect. Yeah, no. You know, exactly. You, you don't need I think anybody it's, else. It's the same you. exact thing with the, when you hit that, when you nail a homebrew. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, now let me ask you, you said that when Beer Guide slash Beer Advocate started. Brew Guide. Or Brew Guide, sorry. Yeah. Brew Guide See, started. that's the whole point. Yeah, you, exactly. You, yeah, it's confusing. Yeah, exa- yeah. So, when Brew Guide slash Beer Advocate first started, you, know, you were putting up your, your commercial notes. Yep. And then, did you ever put up homebrew notes like like what you're tasting? No, we never published homebrew notes. So I mean, I think I still have um, I have binders of all my notes and recipes well, some, I, somewhere. Because I know that's a, like with Untapped and a couple of other the sites that are out there now. Like there are people who put their homebrewers up and, and publish notes. But there was always kind of a thing with beer. Advocate. It was like no, no, this no. Is it's for commercial pressure. only. Yeah, it's it's uh, it would be chaos otherwise. So, like any anyone could go ahead and troll the website and stick a bite. You know Joe Schmo's fucking brewery and just put it up there and start adding their beers. And next thing you know, they'd be on their top list and all that crap. Well, it's, I mean, sometimes it's barely controlled chaos as it is. It is, but yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't need that. We don't need homebrews on the way. And no disrespect to homebrewers, but this is though, you know, webs, Beer Africa's always been a website for people to review commercial beer. <coughs> always will be. Mm-hmm. So now, Thinking about that uh, that aspect of it, I mean, it's like when you started that back in '96. I mean, what did you guys think that was going to turn into? I mean, because I mean, you're you're sitting there saying you're doing all I know, this. No yeah. I mean, for me, it was more of a learning experience because I was, you know, as you when you homebrew, you know, you're tasting every aspect, every mm-hmm. every ingredient, mm-hmm. and every every uh, step of the way. Yeah, um, and you learn a lot about what you like and don't like. Very quickly. So when you're tape, you know, every home brewer, and if you haven't, you're not a real home brewer in my opinion. You taste every ingredient. Yep. 
You put the hops in your mouth. You put them all in your mouth. You chew it. You go, this tastes like granola. I could have this with milk. It'd be great. Yeah, you might only put the hops in your mouth once. <laughs> go, Never mind. No, whatever. And you, uh, you, but you taste, you taste everything. You taste the yeast. You taste everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that was more what it was all about. It was like we could translate the sort of experience that we're having tasting mm-hmm. to commercial beers. So we know the ingredients. I told Jason, like, we know these ingredients. We know right. these flavors. We can, like, map this out them. with a commercial beer. We could actually maybe even, because back then there wasn't a lot of different varieties of hops or, or malts being used. So it was easy to identify them as you're sipping a beer. Yeah, you could say that was the C60O, that's biscuit, that's... Exactly, yeah. And um, so that was exciting for us. We are like, we can actually pick apart these beers and, and write a review about it. There was no scores back then. It was just notes. Um, well, it, I was going to say, so at what point in time did it turn into scores? And then what, t- at what point in time did it turn into everybody gets a chance to so score? This, yeah, that's a, this, the scoring turned into when my brother and I, so the website is organically grown. Mm-hmm. It's people, gone, people and it's ask, gone through its growing pains. Yeah, and so people ask for things and we, we add them, or we don't add whatever. So it started off just reviewing notes from my brother and I. Right. People want to talk about the beer. So we get emails going, these are great, great reviews. We'd love to talk about beers. So we added a forum. It was one of the earliest forums ever about beer. So it was probably like soon after, probably even like 97. And then around... It was just before 2000. People were like, I, you know, we were getting emails all the time. I'd like to review my own beer. Mm-hmm. Like my, you know, what you guys are doing, I'd like yeah. to review it too. So I created a login system. And we're like, you know, we have to do more than just notes. There has to be like a, some sort of some form of structure, like ranking system mm-hmm. for this. So I created a, a quick ranking system for it. Um, and that's how it started. So around 2000, just before 2000 is when users were able to log on and review their own beers. Honestly, I mean, like, this kind of ends up almost being sort of the Yelp of beer, right, in, in a way. Sort yeah. of, yeah. Between <clears throat> between you and Rate Beer and a couple other sites and Untapped nowadays with the phone thing, Untapped's a little bit more about checking in that you've had beers. Yeah, but still. It's, it's like the force. It's like gamification of this yeah. whole thing. But with this whole Yelpification, just to put in some sort of sure. shorthand that people will understand, no. what do you feel like has been the impact of sites like Beer Advocate on the beer industry? That's a good question. Uh, I think the impact of a site like Beer Advocate, especially early on, is that it showed the industry that consumers have a, a voice. Mm-hmm. And that was part of us creating the whole thing too i mean just from us doing our own reviews your, your customers are paying attention to your product right exactly They're, you're selling beer you're making beer mm-hmm. it's awesome but also there's a group of people that are drinking the beer and they got an opinion mm-hmm. and here's here's their opinion collectively here's the opinion um yeah so i think that had a big impact um in the early days a lot of brewers were receptive to it but you did get some who just didn't want to hear you know, talking um, about their baby, yeah, talking no, about their business. Yeah, nobody, nobody wants, something, yeah, yeah, nobody wants somebody to, to say yeah. something bad. But I think a lot of brewers, especially early on, and maybe even today, I don't know, um, there's so many brewers out there now. They all probably view it a different way. But if you look at it for what it is, I think you get a lot from it. Mm-hmm. You've got free, instant, raw feedback with consumers using their words, mm-hmm. tasting your beer. I mean, I mean, there's, there's value the, there. 
Yeah. I mean, that used to be the sort of thing that you'd have to pay good marketing bucks in order to get. Sure. And now it's out there. Yeah. Now, do you, I mean, just thinking about that, though, I mean, I assume that you have people come back to you and say, hey, what the hell's up with this review or this, these reviews or this, that sort of stuff? And We do. I mean, what's the policy for the site about, uh, about that? Do you do anything about the reviews? We've well, I mean, got a reporting system, and, and users will, you know, they have the ability to report something that they see. You know, they, they might see it as being out of place or whatever, trollish or whatever, and we'll review it, and we'll make a call. Um, as far as brewers, like we do have brewers. It's happened in the past where they like they report it. You find out they just don't like the fact that someone said something negative about their beer. We'll review it really quickly, but it's if the review is objective, mm-hmm. it stands. We don't we don't remove things just because someone doesn't like something. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. So now, just what do you what do you think the impact of having this sort of feedback has been on the industry? Do you think there has been positive or negative? Or I think there's been positive and negative for sure. Um, but without, I mean, without a site like without a site like Beeravkit, I think it was like one of the earliest, if not the earliest, sort of communities for beer mm-hmm. and also for reviewing beer, rating beer. Um, a lot have come and gone since then. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of those just would not exist. Brewers would not have access to their cons- you know, consumer feedback instantly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it has really bridged a, it's bridged a gap between the consumer and the brewer, which I think is very important, especially if brewers want to better themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that uh, consumers over the years have dictated what gets brewed. So I, I think a lot of brewers are tuning in maybe a little too much, and they respond accordingly, you know, New England IPA. I'll just well, say that out loud. Well, I was going to say. I, I mean, I mean do, do you ever do you ever partially feel responsible for the IPAification of everything, or? Well, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, we're responsible. I mean, <laughs> we have a site where it's talked about, and it's yeah, it's in, it's in, we we don't discourage the talk. So, yeah, no, we're we're totally responsible for partially making that happen. And that's okay. I mean, I don't agree with it 100%, but I, would, I, I agree 100% with uh, the sort of influence that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great. I think that it's great that consumers can actually help push this style forward. Because mm-hmm. uh, this is probably one of the most consumer-driven styles I've ever seen, mm-hmm. ever. Well, I mean, like I said, I mean, like we were talking earlier with the hop like I remember when that when that was there, that was, oh, that was hoppy. And that was like, that was a rare thing. And now, I mean, every brewery, I mean, even here, we're here at Arts District and Devin has an amazing Devin's breath. Devin's got of, one on, yeah. yeah. I mean, she has an amazing breath of beers and she has a couple of IPAs on. She has, yeah. She's got a, she's, she has a hazy one too. Yeah. I and mean, so she's got a hazy IPA. She's got a regular IPA. She's got a double IPA. She's got a session IPA. I mean, it is what it is. It is. Now, do you, do you ever stop and wish that there was something else that you could get the community to push? Um, that's a really good question. Or do you, do you just think it's... I never really thought about it like that. Like, I, I don't... We've never tried to push our personal agenda. Mm-hmm. I think that would be wrong. Um, we do try to 
look at the site as more like a discovery tool. Mm-hmm. And even if we, so for instance, there's all this talk about buyouts these days. Yep. Um, so we are yeah, creating, we, and we, we talk a lot about that. Yeah. On the so we're, so we we've had it in the past where brewery profile pages were linked up with who owns what. Yep. And we this is long long ago. Uh, we decided to bring it back, and we're not going to push necessarily our agenda, but we're going to list some of the breweries that are owned by other mm-hmm. breweries. Well, I, purely I, for the sake of transparency and just for the sake of discovery, and we're going to let the consumer, the user, whatever. Um, decide for themselves who they want to support. Well, I mean, I've got my personal opinions, Yep. but I don't want to put a rally, you know, I don't want to rally cry on the website going, you have to boycott these breweries. I think that'd be really, that'd be a, a total abuse of the platform. Well, and I think that's a, a fair point, right? I mean, it's like, look, present the information, you do with right. the information what you want to do. Right, we make, we make decisions on a business level mm-hmm. um, based on our personal bias. We, yeah. you know, we, wouldn't be human if we didn't. But, yeah, I wouldn't want to use that power with our users. Well, and, I mean, of course, given how sort of multi-effort you guys are nowadays, you know, with not only the website, but you also have a magazine, which, of course, uh, uh Bena I write for. Yeah. And I have since the inaugural issue. Since the inception. Yep. Uh, you have the events that you're doing and everything else. And, uh, and I know, at least with the magazine, you've run into people, like, going... How dare you run uh, ads from ABI and, yep. and that? And th- so, I mean, that's always been a question for you guys, and like how to how to maintain sort of. Well, we personally, I mean, in the <coughs> next in the next beer smack, well, I guess we say next, but so in the in the June issue of Beer Africa Magazine, June 2017, we run a beer smack where we talk about that line, like mm-hmm. where where do you draw the line and where, how do you hold it, and that we you know, we struggled personally over the years with. Um, Accepting the Brewers Association's definition of craft brewer, and also uh, just our personal views on the whole thing. Um, it's not easy. I mean, there's some of these breweries are, you know, they're they're not owned by nasty companies. They might, mm-hmm. you know, but they're still owned. Yep. Um, others are owned by really horrible companies who do despicable things. And I know you can, it's easy to say, ah, oh, just beer, man. Come on, man, yep. it's just beer. No, it's not just beer. It's livelihoods. It's shutting out options. It's yep. shutting out your fellow brewers. Yep. I mean, I could go on and on. I don't have to. It's well, not just beer. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it, I, I think the problem is, like, I think we were talking earlier with Devin about, like, why sometimes, like, you hear brewers talk about, like, hey, what's your favorite beer to drink uh, when you're not, you know, drinking your own beer? And that always seems to fall into like some sort of like uh, Pilsner, PBR, Coors Light type. Talk thing. to a lot of brewers, and it is usually one of those products. Yeah, yep. and it is because you know, at some point in time, it just comes down to look. I just want to have a beer and not have to think about it. Mm-hmm. And the problem is like with some of this bio stuff. And I'm, I'm I have a very well known point of view. And anybody who's listening to the podcast knows exactly where I stand on this. You know, where it's very much like, look, congratulations, you got your money. I'm not going to funnel my money into a, com- a company exactly, I don't yeah. agree on. And that's me. Right. But that is extra weight about the whole thinking about beer thing. And not everybody wants to do that, and I get it. You yeah. know? And, and it seems like, I mean, for you guys, you've had, that, you've had that weight earlier. Because I do remember when the mag launched, there were a lot of people who were going, hey, why are you taking a Budweiser ad? And, I mean, and I'll be honest. I mean, <coughs> we took the money back then. 
because <laughs> no one else could afford to pay for the freaking ads. Like a lot of small brewers, they don't, you know, I love them. I love you guys, all you new brewers, but you guys don't budget for marketing at all. Yeah. Well, you guys think social media can solve all of your business problems. And you know what? It doesn't. Sometimes you do have to advertise. Yeah. And, I th- and unfortunately, traditional advertising, be it the web or print, whatever, is, uh, you know, it's, it's being hurt. And so back then, in the early days, you know, we had to take a more traditional print approach. We mm-hmm. take the money. But we've always had, and it, you know, people could say otherwise, but we've always had a very, very solid line between content and advertising. Yeah, I mean, there's a advertorial versus editorial. Right, and we've, you know, between the the alt weeklies that we used to run a weekly, you know, we mm-hmm. we did a weekly beer column in Boston yeah, you for did a like long Phoenix, time right? for like a decade. That was a it was a publication called the Weekly Dig, and we did the Phoenix for a while too. Um, that was later, but the. Uh, you know, we we've run pieces in mag, in you know publications like that in our own magazine. We've run pieces in those alt weeklies and also our own magazine, where it's actually cost us tens of thousands of advertising dollars mm-hmm. just because of an opinion that we we share, and um, we're okay well, with that. You know, it's like that's just part of doing business and speaking the truth. Well, and sometimes when you have an opinion like that, I mean. Part of the value of the opinion is to the core audience, right? I mean, it may cost you yes. in the immediate part, but the core audience is going to look and then go say, "Okay, we, you're we literally true. cost us. We cost the company in our because of our opinion, mm-hmm. probably in the hundreds of thousands over the but, over the years." But that's for sure. But that's a relatively short term thing in terms of it is. what the value of the brand right. We're, is. We're in it for long haul. Yeah. Again, we've been around since 1996. We're not some. Yeah. We're not an app. You know, you guys who are just discovering us today, we're not an app. We're not a blog. We're a company. We've been around since 96. Well, I know you, you guys have had that uh, sort of pressure from, say, the untaps of the world and whatnot. Sure. Like where people are like, I mean, why don't you have a Well, we app? actually came out with an app. Yeah. And then we, we decided it wasn't the app that we wanted, and we didn't like it, so we pulled it. Mm-hmm. Is there any plans to move back into the app world, or are you... Yep. We're actually exploring it, but um, a different approach. So our... our problem was we approached the app the first time was trying to replicate what was going on on the yep. web on the desktop web yep. Yep, exactly so now we're looking at is more from the user's pr- perspective the app more about functionality and thinking about data getting in kind yeah. of more the, the instagram slash pull up that beer instantly type world. yeah it's going to be more of a functional tool not more <laughs> of like a bragging thing but more of a purely functional tool going Here. forward that's the beer I'm having. Tell me about it. Or uh, I'm looking for this beer. I'm here. I'm looking for this beer. What's going on? Cool. All right. Now, so real quick, what do you love about the beer industry? You've been here since 96. You've been here since the first craft beer bubble went, and now you've seen the second one. I love that it keeps on changing. I think that's the, the thing I love about it the most is it's not stagnant. I mean, when we started, there was... I don't even know. In 96, how many how many so-called craft brewers were there? Not many. There were less than 1,000. Yeah. Now we're well over. We're approaching 6,000 in the U.S. alone. Yeah. Uh, it's nuts. It is nuts. I love that, though. I love that it's nuts. Well, and, and, and it's not all good. No. And, and, and more of it should be good. 
and that's well, okay. I, I know Jason posted a, a picture the other day on Instagram or oh, Facebook, and it was crap, like that was disgusting. Yeah, it was like a, a flight of beers that were like they're all they're all supposed to be different beers, but they all look like something you literally ladled out of your toilet after taking a huge dump. To put it bluntly, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, no, they were all they all seemed yeast filled and like. It's not even New England hazy IPA type thing. It no, was. It's like, it come was, on, man. It was bad. It's like, bro, do you even haze, bro? Yeah, uh, that wasn't even, bro, do you haze? That's, bro, do you double haze? That was gravity yeah, was bong just, haze. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with those. Well, and I was going to say, I think, like, to me at least, one of the biggest changes, and we were just talking about this on a previous podcast, and I don't know how many podcasts before this is going to be before this goes out, but we were just talking that. It seems like, you know, everybody's talking about the craft beer bubble, right? You know, we've grown to this, you know, five to 6,000 breweries. When is this going to collapse back down like what we saw in 96, right? You, I mean, you remember Well, that. that was different. I mean, the late, the late 90s. Well, late 90s was. You can't, a lot of people are trying to equate to that. Probably weren't even around then or weren't even to yeah. beer then. But that was a, what we saw then, in my opinion, from what I saw at least in Boston, where half the breweries mm-hmm. in like a year or two period closed. That was because restaurant tours got into the business and they yeah. they pulled out. Yep, absolutely. It's a little different now. Because what we're seeing now is where a lot of guys who are homebrewers or maybe not so business savvy getting into it. Or maybe expanding when they shouldn't. Yep. Well, and I think we're even seeing some of the, like with some of the buyouts that are happening now, where maybe some of that's overcapitalization or a drive to keep expanding. Maybe. Um, but I mean, to me, it, it just seems like where we are now, one of the things I said on the podcast earlier was I think we're getting to the point in time where your local neighborhood brewery is becoming the equivalent of, you know, like if you're living in Boston, your local neighborhood pizza joint. Well, yeah. we, I think we're, at the, we're actually at the maturation point. So the industry is now matured. We're, mm-hmm. out, we're now at the point where it's time to show your skills. The people's skills will survive. Buyouts and things like that are common. And if you look at any other industry, these things are common. It's this, what's happening with beer right now is not, you know, it's not unusual. It's just a natural progression of any industry that gets yeah. popular. Yeah. Um, so. It gets absorbed. And yeah. Then... So we're not, the bubble is not going to pop. No. There's not going to be this huge fallout where we lose half our breweries. You're just going to see the ones who aren't cut out to do business die. Like mm-hmm. any other business. Yep. And the ones who are ripe for a buyout, or, or better yet, because people get this confused, they get angry at the brewery, or they get, well, they get, yeah, they get angry at the brewery or the buyer, or whatever. They either want to sell out or they get bought out, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could go both ways. Yep. Absolutely. And there's other, there's other uh, you know, there's other reasons why people sell too. You know, there's uh, no one wants to take over the business family wise or, Financially, they're they're screwed. They need to sell out. Yeah, um, and then they they sell out. Whatever, but it's just all part of a natural progression of a maturing industry. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you change about the industry right now, if you could, if you if you had the magical dictatorial wand to go, I change you now, what would you change? We just all drink some beers and hug, man. <laughs> That's it. We just all drink some beers and hug it out. Dude, it's beer, huh? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I, those were, that's what it was like a little bit back in the early days. But 
Um, you know, back when no one, you know, now people talk about each other. There's lots of drama. And again, it's just a natural part. There's so many brewers. Mm -hmm. You got the the older guns yep. aiming at the young guns, mm -hmm. making fun of them, and vice versa. And it's just it's all it's just all part of the sort of ebb and flow. So but like, um, dude, just chill out. Yeah, I mean that's what I've that's what I'm finding here in LA. Chill out a little bit. You know, I hear there's a little bit of drama here, but the people I'm hearing that there's drama are not from here. Yeah. So if you talk to people that are from here. There's really no, there's not a lot of drama. People are pretty chill. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, this is a town of 20 million people. Yeah, huge. We, uh, we are now at, I think, like 60 breweries. We got a while to go before we get to the real a drama. A long while to go. I mean, we had in, uh, you know, just came from Denver. Mm -hmm. And that was like over 60 in the Denver metro area. Uh, not as many people, for sure. Mm -hmm. Much different. Um, yeah. Welcome to Los Angeles. We got a shit ton of people here, people. Yeah. <laughs> so, now I have to ask. I know that one of the things that sites like Beer Advocate get dinged on in terms of fueling is the whole idea of the whale hunt, right? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm going after, I'm going after the espresso barrel aged this, that, or the other that's double dry hopped with mangoes or something like that. Yep. How do you feel about that? And like, you know, like, what, I, I mean, I get it. I don't. We can all poke fun at them. <coughs> I have. Mm -hmm. I get it. If that's your thing, man, go for it. I mean, there's there's people out there who uh, they're into say sneakers, mm -hmm. and they're they're spending their they're spending their life savings getting the latest kicks or whatever, and it, it, it happens. I'm not telling. I'm not making up. You know, no, whatever. no, it, it happens. Us. Levar maybe Ball's you're got what six hundred dollars, or maybe you're into you know like day. LA. I find you're into burgers and you're running around trying to find the next cool burger joint or mm -hmm. taco joint, whatever. It happens, and it happens in beer. It's like big deal. That's what you're into. Fine, do your thing. Um, but I'm like, at some point, I'm like, man, just take a step back and just like enjoy beer, man. Beer is fun. Why they become so serious sometimes? Like mm -hmm. some of these guys, are, it's almost like. You might have a chemical imbalance because you're so... No, it's true. These guys get so intense and you're just like... I just... It, it kind of goes back to... Like, I said it was just beer, but sometimes it, it, it is beer. It's, it's a luxury item. And you're the consumer, so it's a luxury item for you. Mm -hmm. You're not losing your job because you couldn't get the whale or whatever. You just... Just relax. Just go have a nice Pilsner or Kolsch or whatever. Just really chill out. You don't always have to go after that crazy-ass whale. So, in other words, I don't think we're going to see Todd Alstrom with a lawn chair anytime soon. No, no, I've never, I've, I've never, I don't think I've ever waited in line for a beer just because I've chosen not to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't do that. That's not that's not me. And although we have trading on our website, I've never traded for a beer. I prefer. I'm old school. I like to go to the source. If I really want that beer, I'll go to the source <laughs> and I'll try it and I'll talk to the people who made it. Well, it's so say, much better, man. It's so much better. I was going to say, I mean, I, I know like part of the whale hunting type thing gets laid at the feet of traders, right? You know, like people yeah. who are looking like, look, I'm going to go, I'll spend my time in line and sit in a lawn chair to go do this thing. And I know there's some of that is pointed back at Beer Advocate because, I mean, eventually you guys sort of said, oh, well, you know, we've got this trading community, so we'll give some tools for it. Yeah. I don't know. We, we, uh, we totally cater to it. Yeah. 
Um, but again, I'm not going to dig just because I don't like something doesn't necessarily mean I need to, you know, push that onto all of our users because we have users from all over the place. Why, you know, why should they all have to subscribe to what I believe in? It's not the point of beer advocate. That the original point of beer advocate was for the consumers to express their voice. And if their voice is, I need to go hunt a whale, mm-hmm. or I want to spend my entire life in lines trying to get a beer, hey man, that's go for it. Yeah, I'm not stopping you. It's it's, it's not my thing, but no. Do it, and we—it's something we struggle with too. We've kind of gone back and forth on certain things. At one point, I wanted to kill trading because it's such a pain in the ass. Yeah, these guys, some of these guys, mo I'd say, ninety-nine percent are solid dudes. Just going like, I really want to get my hands in that beer. <coughs> well, but then you got to deal with the the. Dudes it's that one percent. Yeah, the, the guys are like, oh hey dude, I'll trade you this thing, and then one percent who literally have. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure they they live for this. That's it. That's all they do, and they they probably blown a lot of money. Well, but uh, burn bridges and all that stuff. But but I would also think like one of the problems for you guys would be, hey, look, we're facilitating this whole trading idea, and then somebody doesn't deliver. Oh, we get it we all the time. Yeah, I mean, we have like, we have some stuff in place for that, but it's like well, becomes I mean, more of a he said, he said, he said, she said they, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so now, obviously, we talked a little bit about the IPA thing. We talked a little bit about the whales. Since you've been doing the beer thing since 96, well, actually, probably prior, but now you've been doing the beer, beer thing semi-professionally since 96, what do you wish that people would drink mm. that wasn't an IPA? I would say... We are in the IPification of the yeah, entire year. I would tell everyone to drink more lagers. Well, and that was like earlier, like I said in the interview with Devin... She had a really nice Vienna on. She oh. had a German Pils on. They were both and, delicious. And, the, and, and for, for an ill, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, another, yeah, people don't always think about that as being a lager, but it is. So she had three lagers on, two of which were on the lighter side. Yep. And, uh, you know, for an ale brewer, and I say this with the utmost respect, I thought they were, they were pretty good. Uh, I mean, I, I love that Vienna. I love that. Because there is a difference with someone who dedicates themselves to oh, yeah. the, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Right. But I love that Vienna because it, was, yeah. it, was, it had that nice toast. It did. Note. It had that nice, round, sort of toasty dollop in the middle, a little bit of sweetness, but not too much. Mm-hmm. It was good. Totally agree. Yeah. All right, and then uh, before we leave out here, so you have recently relocated. I, mean, I have, yeah. I mean, everybody thinks of Beer Advocate as being almost always a Boston-oriented application. Yeah, for the longest time we have been. <laughs> In Boston, well, yep. Well, and then you were out in, in Denver for a little bit, but now, yep. Surprise, surprise! Even to me, yeah. You just found out today. <laughs> what? The, what? My kind of some somewhat boss is in LA. Yep. So, and because of that, I mean, obviously, I mean, you guys started as a website, yeah, and you started to do some fests. So yeah, ninety six website. <coughs> And then festivals, so we got sick and tired of the festivals going on on the East Coast, especially Boston, mm-hmm. where they weren't paying for the beer. They are treating the, uh, the brewers like shit. So we decided to do our own festivals. Those launched in 2003. Yep. And, uh, and I remember yep. going to some of the early ones and being very happy and very, very drunk at some yeah. of them. So we, uh, we decided to expand our signature event, which started in 2004. So I think it was our... Like third festival, Extreme Beer Fest, mm-hmm. 2004. And uh, since day one, it sold out. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I just love that event. It goes back to what I was originally talking about, how I just love how the industry is constantly changing. And that festival is purely about beers that push the boundary of brewing. We want to see your most creative mm-hmm. beers on the floor. And that changes year to year. So, like, new styles emerge. Yep. So, like, uh, a couple years ago, you might have seen some New England IPAs on yep. the floor in Boston. But now they're, you know, they've become the norm. So those are out. So we'll tell brewers going forward that you can't bring... Don't bring that... Yeah, unless you do something to it. So, like, I just had a New England IPA-ish type thing from um, a brewery in Chicago called Forbidden Root. They did a collaboration with Three Floyds. It's called Stay Lit. And it was delicious. It was made with some lactose. And they used some cherry wood and I think some yellow birch wood as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what... See, that's extreme in my opinion. You took a style that everyone's going after, but you made it your own. Yeah, because Forbidden Roots known for their botanical sort of ingredients, and all that came across, and it made it a totally different beer. So that's what extreme brewing is partially about. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get a lot of barrel-aged beers, a lot of, like, uh, botanical beers. Yeah, like people, and, and emerging people, styles. people who are kind of trying to kick the can down a little bit. Uh, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna push things around a bit. Yep, yep. And so now we're bringing it to LA, December 9th. Awesome. It's a Saturday, the California Market Center in downtown LA. That not, fashion, not too far from where we're sitting right now. No, no, it's not far in the Fashion District. Yep. I think that's what they call it. Yep. So, yeah, it is in the Fashion District. Yep. And uh, by the way, if you're not aware, yeah, downtown LA has many districts. Uh, there, we are in the arts districts. I'm still there's learning. A, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a the fashion district. Yep. A good portion of Skid Row encompasses both of those, <laughs> and Skid Row means exactly what you think Skid Row means. And but I mean, still, I mean, it's kind of cool. You guys have a location is relatively centrally located between a couple of metro stops. Yep. So people can get here without being stupid, and get uh, actually more importantly, they can, they can get away without being stupid. I hope so. Yep. yep. And uh, tickets and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're all on sale now. We kind of we did a soft launch. We didn't really push it. We haven't done much advertising. A couple of emails, mm-hmm. but they're on sale now, and they will sell out. Every extreme beer fest we've ever held is sold out, and I think this one will be the same. Um, and it's uh, it's it's going to be a great time. And our our sponsor, so Sam Calagione mm-hmm. over Dogfish Head, he sponsors all of them, so he's sponsoring this one too. So we'll do a pre-party. So this will be a unlike Boston, it'll be a one-day event on Saturday, yep. two sessions. We'll do a pre-party somewhere on Friday. Cool. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Well, and you know, Sam's always game to have fun. Yeah, and, and uh, if you guys, uh, for anyone who didn't go to our Boston one, it's probably a lot of you. Uh, we did our, it's called Puddin' Wine. We brewed it last year at Dogfish Head in Rehoboth Beach. Um, it's basically our take on a English barley wine. But if you think about it, the ingredients that you would put it uh, from a Christmas pudding. So fruits and things mm-hmm. like nuts and whatnot. It's good. So we're going to have that. And it's agents and barrels. That'll be on uh, tap, too. So. Well, like I said, I mean, in the fest I've been into the past in Boston, they're always great. You guys do a very... I mean, I think the best thing about the fest that, that I can say is that you go to a lot of fests and you'll get breweries that are, oh, look, that's our pale ale, that's our this, that. It's the core lineup, right, with, like, maybe one special thing. Yeah, this will not be the core lineup. Yeah. But but yeah. even but even on the non extreme beer fest side, you guys have always been very good. Not only about paying for the beer, but also for saying since day one, yeah, yep, we but, always pay for the beer. But also encouraging. No, no, 
bring us something interesting. Yeah. And of course, this will be everything interesting. Yeah, this one will be everything interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be good. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, well, uh, no, I was going to say, uh, before we leave, Todd, do you have anything else that you want to tell people about beer advocate? Beer, nah. beer in LA, beer, uh, beer in general, beer, beer, I would beer, just beer, be beer. pitching them something that I shouldn't, but I will just say that it, since I've only been in LA for a, a short period of time, but so far I absolutely love the beer scene. It's so young and yeah, we, we've definitely yeah, grown it's, up over it's the past vibrant. Six years. Yeah, it's just so I don't know, just really cool to see this. It's um, again, I come from you know like Denver, pre-established. Boston even more so. Mm-hmm. It's nice to come into a fresh scene. Even though the city's been around forever and it's one of the largest ones in the world, it's good to see such a young beer scene emerging. Well, It's, it's so cool. Uh, I always argue that LA's been about 20 years in the past, but man, is it catching up fast. It's, it's catching up quick. Yeah. Very quick. That's awesome. Yeah, it All is. Right. Well, hey, uh, so uh, thank you, Todd. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Drew. Yeah, and hey, Onward, upward, and if you're here in the L.A. area or somewhere around L.A. in December, uh, make sure to come out to the Extreme Beer Fest L.A. You'll be able to see Todd. You'll be able to see me. You'll be able to see Sam. You'll be able to see other people, I hope. You'll, you'll, it's just going to be a damn good time. Because Otherwise, pick up Beer African Magazine and read Drew's column every month. Was that good? Do you like the reverse oh, plug? I, oh, there you go. Jerry, come I love you. Thank but then you, I plugged myself back. So we like did a Dude, double it's, plug. It's a multi-layered plug of yeah. pluggy goodness. And hey, after all, every every column says host of Experimental Brewing Podcast. It does. The plugs, they never end. <laughs> and that's okay in this modern day and age. Just remember, drink a beer and enjoy yourself. Ta-da. <laughs> cool. That was Drew talking to Todd Alstrom of Beer Advocate. And uh I just found that interview fascinating, man, because he's been around for so long and been involved in in so many things. Uh, Just a lot of fascinating beer historical info there. Yeah, and I mean, it's just kind of cool to get the perspective of somebody who's been, shall we say, beer adjacent uh, for a very long period of time. And uh, I can't wait to see what Todd pulls out with the Extreme Beer Fest that's going to come here in L.A. and later this year. Uh, I'll be there. If you guys will be there, let me know. That's pretty much right up your alley, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, the original Extreme Beer Fest in Boston was always fantastic, but it's flying from L.A. to Boston. So this time, it's a lift ride. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okie dokie. We are going to take a quick break and come back and wrap up the show with a quick tip, a couple questions, and something other than beer. So stick around. And we're going to start off with a few questions. Uh, we had been thinking about saving them all for our Q&A show coming up in episode 48. But what the heck? We just can't resist. We got a few here and we want to get answers out to people. But please remember that uh, we do need your questions for episode 48, our all Q&A show that's coming up soon. Send them in to questions at experimentalbrew.com. 
Or call and leave a voicemail at 626-765-1AL, and we may use your voice and question on the air. Yeah, that's that's even more fun and easier, because you don't have to type anything. So uh, we're going to put a couple questions together here. It uh, starts off with one from Tyler James and goes on to another one, and uh, I'll read them, and then we'll just discuss them both. Mm-hmm. Uh Tyler says, maybe a silly question, but can I reuse commercial sour beer bottles or is there danger from the bugs? And more questions on bugs. I'm having an issue with fruit flies attracted to my fermenter while open fermenting my Hefeweizen bucket with a foil over the grommet. The fruit flies came into the house shortly after I began fermenting this batch with a box of fruit that was given to my wife. I don't know that they have come close enough to the beer to cause problems, but I have found them on the lid and under the outer edges of the foil. I'm working on getting rid of them, but in the meantime, is there any way to make sure they don't cause me any trouble? Maybe towel or blanket over the fermenter to create an extra barrier? Thanks. So uh, my takes on this one, number one, yeah, if you carefully wash and uh, sanitize those bottles, there's no danger in reusing them. Uh, it's not like the, the bugs are going to somehow uh, penetrate the glass and get stuck in there. On the fruit flies, man, I hate those suckers. Um, I have had starters ruined by fruit flies. Uh, I don't think I've had uh, a batch ruined by them. Uh I guess my first question is, how important is it that you open ferment this Hefeweizen? Uh, if you can't, if you don't have to, uh, maybe wait until a better season to do that. But definitely take precautions to keep them away because it doesn't take much for the, uh, the acetobacter that fruit flies carry to ruin a batch of beer. No, not in the least. And I'll say on the bug front, uh, well, on the bug bacteria front, I'll say if you want to just be able to if you just want to be doubly extra sure that you're going to be safe, you know, maybe do a thorough cleaning and then do two sanitizing rinses with two different sanitizers. So, you know, use an iodophore rinse and then use like a star sand sandy clean rinse. That way you get two different actions happening on your bottles and you can be fairly certain that you're nothing is going to survive. If you want to be even extra super duper cautious and you like your oven, you can always look up online the oven sanitizing method, which is pretty much guaranteed to kill everything. Yeah, that's right, man. I was going to mention that. So, yeah, that that would be the 100% safe way, but I think that the other method is going to be about 99.9% safe. Yeah, and then on the fruit flies, the only thing I can tell you is hey, don't open ferment while you have a fruit fly problem. Uh, if you want to know whether or not you're still having issues or you want to kind of try and keep them away, I actually find that a cup of vinegar uh, actually works pretty well because they're attracted to it, and you can create a vinegar trap for the flies. So... Yeah, and and I uh, I actually put a few drops of soap in the vinegar because it, it helps actually uh, grab onto the fruit flies and keep them from flying back out. So it pulls the wee I, little yeah. buggers under. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, around here, uh, you know, we have a, a large garden and lots of fruit trees and stuff like that. And uh, when we get into harvest season, there's definitely a fruit fly problem. Darn, that's hard to say. Uh, and I've had a couple years where it got so bad, I just had to kind of give up on brewing until the fruit flies were gone. Uh, so now that I brew in a, in a separate building, it's not quite so bad, but, uh, you know, you got to take precautions to avoid those little suckers because they are bad news. Indeed. So you get the next question here, buddy. 
All right. So the next question comes from Tim Graves, who says, Drew, love the podcast. It's fun, insightful, and engaging. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> What's wrong with that guy? Yeah. In an older episode, you made mention of using dried, unsulfured mango as a way to age on fruit. I was curious about what process you would use for them. Presumably, we after fermentation has ended. How would you sanitize? How would you prepare it, if at all? Chop, mince, leave it as is? The stuff I have varies in size from pinky size to palm size. How long would you let it ride for? Any other tips? Cheers. Uh, yeah, so dried mango, I would totally use it as a secondary uh, addition. Uh, basically a packaging, aging, bright tank type thing. You know, dry mango, dry fruit, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh, as for preparation... Really, honestly, the easiest thing is just to do a quick dip into some star sand. I don't really necessarily think it's usually all that necessary by the point in time that you get to uh, aging a beer uh, with the uh, mango in it. And you already got the alcohol and the pH drop in there, but if you want to be extra special cautious, then totally feel free to go give it a quick rinse in some star sand and, and cross your fingers. As for preparation, I wouldn't do much, actually. If you do have those big palm-sized chunks... Feel free to go chop those up a little bit, but otherwise, ease is the way to do it, at least in my mind. And then for how long? Uh, really, it's going to depend, but I would say at least a week, uh, possibly two weeks, and then give it a taste and decide if you need more uh, time or less. Uh, mango is kind of a funny one because mango does carry that kind of very fresh and bright acidic uh, flavor to it, so just be careful. It can run over your beer pretty quickly cool yeah and, and as always when you're doing any kind of flavorings in beer uh the key is your taste buds so uh taste it and you decide because that's uh that makes a lot more sense than us trying to tell you how long to do it for yep there you go don't forget that's our two questions for today we have plenty of time coming up for more questions in episode 48 our all q a because remember every 12 episodes we do another q a so just plugging it again, podcast at experimentalbrew.com, questions at experimentalbrew.com, or 626-765-1-ALE, just to get those questions in time so that we have time to research and give you better possible maybe answers. That's right, you know. Um, research is a good thing, especially when it comes to us, and uh, let me tell you that uh, you can remember the one ale easily because everybody knows one ale isn't enough. Exactly. All right. So, time to move on to the closing parts of the show here? It is indeed, and uh, I guess next we go to the quick tip. So, what you got for us? All right, quick tip. This is something brewing adjacent, but I think it's actually a purely good summertime tip. Uh, it's hot out there. Be careful. Be safe. And if you can, go to your hardware store and buy a misting rig. <laughs> uh, at least here in Southern California, where we don't have any humidity, uh, I will use a misting rig on brew days to at least create a cool zone to go run to, to go hide, and do other things. And I will tell you, you'd be amazed. Even just a simple, cheapo, uh, $10 stiff plastic tubing thing that you know is designed to stand on its own and just spray out some mist can do wonders in your brew area. So please explore the idea of misting. And during these hot summer months, also remember, please stay hydrated. And no, that doesn't mean more beer. <laughs> That's right. So, okay, so you have just earned the title of Mr. Mister. Mr. Mister. There we go. Curia lizard. <laughs> Wait, what? No. <laughs> All right. Okay. And something other than beer, man. You sent me that link last night. It was darn cute. Yeah. So I think I've talked about them before in the past. If I haven't, then I was remiss. But of course, this is combining two of my favorite things things on YouTube and things involving dogs. 
And it's the Old Friends Dog Sanctuary in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. They are literally a rescue group that goes and rescues senior dogs and gives them a space to live in for the rest of their golden puppy years. And, you know, they try and adopt the dogs out. You know, if they don't find foster homes or adoption homes for them, then they've actually opened up a facility in Mount Juliet. It's a big place. Basically, they converted a, I think it's like an old retail showroom into a dog sanctuary. And what they just did was put online two video cameras, uh, one in the main room and one in their backyard that are constantly streaming to the internet to show you sort of the mayhem of having as many dogs as they do. And they have all sorts of special dogs. You know, they have tripod dogs, they have old senior dogs, they have, you know, funny dogs who are blind. But you go and you listen to the camera and you look at the camera and it's just awesome to see all these dogs. And they have couches set up for the dogs because, hey, good boys (laughs) deserve couches to lay on. And in the middle of the night, what I've actually found is that it the video stream becomes very relaxing because the feed becomes full of snoring dogs and a rattling, oscillating fans. Sometimes they have music playing. And then if you switch to the outdoor fan right or the outdoor camera, right now you'll hear the sounds of cicadas and grasshoppers and all that kind of buzzing away in the night. And for a boy from Florida, that's kind of a little bit of uh, heartwarming homesickness. So <laughs> it combines a lot of yeah, things and it's very relaxing. When I when I tuned in last night, it was uh, fairly late at night, and uh, there were like three dogs sleeping on couches and stuff like that. And I went, "Darn, this could be my living room." Oh, I know it's it's amazing, and it's made me think. Okay, how do I make that a possibility for me when I get older and have to retire and do all that sort of stuff? Because that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, let me tell you, that's not what retirement is like. No, not, particularly not if you find somebody who says, "Hey, you know, we should do a podcast or two. <laughs> <laughs> so there's quick, okay there, there's I, something other than beer go watch the go watch the old dog sleep and uh enjoy the relaxing sounds of that whole experience that's right well i guess that that about uh wraps it up for this show uh thank you all for listening to experimental brewing you can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website experimentalbrew.com i'll have uh some stuff from my chili trip up there pretty soon don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums. Uh, Drew hangs out on the Reddit Homebrewing Forum and the Slack Homebrewing Forum. Uh, am I forgetting anything there, man? Are we other places, too? Yeah, every other homebrewing forum known to mankind and some only known to alien life forms. Yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, don't forget that if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or you have an idea for an experiment, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 